Welcome to Ratchet Book Club, where we read hood classics and good classics. I'm Derek. 916-633-1537. Ratchet and Ratchet at gmail.com. Ratchet Book Club on Twitter. Ratchet Book Club on Facebook. Yeah. So I do want to let y'all know that um, for the next couple of books, I guess, they'll all be clean. Like the next three books, I'm thinking, off the top of my head. May not be three, it might be two, depending on how long it takes to read them. The reason why is because we're getting close to October. And when the month of October hits, I have a book that I have to read. Like literally have to read and y'all are going to love it. Um... And then I might do some Stephen King books around it. But we're not there yet. And I don't want to start another uh, book and risk not making it to it. I might put a ratchet book in between these next two books, though. I might. I have a couple that are on tap. But the first book I'm doing is a children's classic. And if you don't think this is a children's classic, then you obviously weren't a children. Um, because not only was this one of the greatest books that was ever written, it also became a wonderful, wonderful movie. Like a lot of movies don't get that adaptation part down pat. This movie actually did. It did a really good job and it just made me love the book even more. And I have copies of the book. I just don't quite remember who I lent the copies out to, which happens. Um, But that's okay, because that means that another child is getting a chance to read a beautiful book or an adult, because books are for everybody. I don't care what the book is. If you're reading it, then it's good for you. You know, I'm never going to disrupt somebody's flow as far as reading. Um, But yes... With no further ado, I might get through this in like a couple days. I might. I We, we gonna see. We gonna see. Without further ado, I present to you Holes by Louis Sacker. And let me say again before I get started, Louis Sacker might just be my favorite author of all time. It's between him and Jerry Spinelli as far as children's books. And I do have some Jerry Spinelli books that I will get to down the line other than Maniac McGee, which we already did. So, with that said, Holes. Part 1. You are entering Camp Green Lake. Chapter 1. There's no lake at Camp Green Lake. There once was a very large lake here. The largest lake in Texas. That was over a hundred years ago. Now it is just a dry, flat wasteland. There used to be a town at Green Lake as well. The town shriveled and dried up along with the lake and the people who lived there. During the summer, the daytime temperature hovers around 95 degrees in the shade. If you can find any shade. There's not much shade in a big dry lake. The only trees are two old oaks on the eastern edge of the lake. A hammock is stretched between the two trees, and a log cabin stands behind that. The campers are forbidden to lie in the hammock. It belongs to the warden. The warden owns the shade. Out on the lake, rattlesnakes and scorpions find shade under rocks, and in the holes dug by the campers. Here's a good rule to remember about rattlesnakes and scorpions. If you don't bother them, they won't bother you. Usually. Being bitten by a scorpion or even a rattlesnake is not the worst thing that can happen to you. You won't die. Usually. Sometimes a camper will try to be bitten by a scorpion, or even a small rattlesnake. Then, he'll get to spend a day or two recovering in his tent instead of having to dig a hole out on the lake. But you don't want to be bitten by a yellow-spotted lizard. That's the worst thing that can happen to you. You will die a slow and painful death. 
always. If you get bitten by a yellow spotted lizard, you might as well go into the shade of the oak trees and lie in the hammock. There's nothing that anyone can do to you anymore. Chapter 2 The reader's probably asking, why would anyone go to Camp Green Lake? Well, most campers weren't given a choice. Camp Green Lake is a camp for bad boys. If you take a bad boy and make him dig a hole every day in the hot sun, it will turn him into a good boy. That was what some people thought. Stanley Yelnats was given a choice. The judge said, You may go to jail, or you may go to Camp Green Lake. Stanley was from a poor family. He had never been to camp before. Chapter 3 Stanley Yelnats was the only passenger on the bus, not counting the driver or the guard. The guard sat next to the driver with his seat turned around facing Stanley. A rifle lay across his lap. Stanley was sitting about ten rows back, handcuffed to his armrest. His backpack lay on the seat next to him. It contained his toothbrush, toothpaste, and a box of stationery his mother had given him. He had promised to write her at least once a week. He looked out the window, although there wasn't much to see. Mostly fields of hay and cotton. He was on a long bus ride to nowhere. The bus wasn't air-conditioned, and the hot, heavy air was almost as stifling as the handcuffs. Stanley and his parents had tried to pretend that he was just going away for camp for a while, just like rich kids do. When Stanley was younger, he used to play with stuffed animals and pretend the animals were at camp. Camp fun and games, he called it. Sometimes, he'd have them play soccer with a marble. Other times, they'd run an obstacle course or go bungee jumping off a table tied to broken rubber bands. Now Stanley tried to pretend he was going to camp funning games. Maybe he'd make some friends, he thought. At least he'd get to swim in the lake. He didn't have any friends at home. He was overweight, and the kids at his middle school often teased him about his size. Even his teachers sometimes made cruel comments without realizing it. On his last day at school, his math teacher, Mrs. Bell, taught ratios. As an example, she chose the heaviest kid in the class and the lightest kid in the class and had them weigh themselves. Stanley weighed three times as much as the other boy. Miss Bell wrote the ratio on the board, three to one, unaware of how much embarrassment she had caused both of them. Stanley was arrested later that day. He looked at the guard who sat slumped in his seat and wondered if he had fallen asleep. The guard was wearing sunglasses, so Stanley couldn't see his eyes. Stanley was not a bad kid. He was innocent of the crime for what he was convicted. He had just been in the wrong place at the wrong time. It was all because of his no-good, dirty-rotten, pig-stealing great-great-grandfather. He smiled. It was a family joke. Whenever something went wrong... They always blamed Stanley's no-good, dirty-rotten, pig-stealing great-great-grandfather. Supposedly, he had a great-great-grandfather who had stolen a pig from a one-legged gypsy. And she put a curse on him and all his descendants. Stanley and his parents didn't believe in curses, of course. But whenever anything went wrong, it felt good to be able to blame someone. Things went wrong a lot. They always seemed to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. He looked out the window at the vast emptiness. He watched the rise and fall of a telephone wire. In his mind, he could hear his father's gruff voice softly singing to him. If only, if only the woodpecker sighs. The bark on the tree was just a little softer while the wolf waits below. Hungry and lonely, he cries to the moon, if only, if only. By the way, and this is me, I'm not going to remember how I sang that song later on, so don't hold it against me. I could have just read it. Y'all are welcome. What's going to happen going on throughout this book is y'all are going to get remixes. Eh, eh. 
It was a song his father used to sing to him. The melody was sweet and sad, but Stanley's favorite part was when his father would howl the word moon. The bus hit a small bump and the guard sat up, instantly alert. Stanley's father was an inventor. To be a successful inventor, you need three things. Intelligence, perseverance, and just a little luck. Stanley's father was smart and had a lot of perseverance. Once he started a project, he would work on it for years, often going days without sleep. He just never had any luck. Every time an experiment failed, Stanley could hear him cursing his dirty, rotten, pig-stealing great-grandfather. Stanley's father was also named Stanley Yelnats. Stanley's father's full name was Stanley Yelnats III. Our Stanley is Stanley Yelnats IV. Everyone in his family had always liked the fact that Stanley Yelnats was spelled the same way frontwards and backwards. So they kept naming their son Stanley. Stanley was an only child, as was every other Stanley Yelnats before him. By the way, children, Stanley Yelnats is a palindrome. Hey Siri, what's a palindrome? A palindrome is a word, number, phrase, or other sequence of characters which reads the same backward as forward, such as Madame Aracecar. Would you like to hear more? No, thank you. So, for those of y'all who didn't hear what she said, race car is a palindrome because it's spelled the same way backwards and forwards. If you flip the letters, it'll spell the same word. Madam is a palindrome. Same thing. And Stanley Yelnats is a palindrome. And it's one of the most beautiful ones in the world, in my opinion. All of them had something in common. Despite their awful luck, they always remained hopeful. As Stanley's father liked to say, I learned from failure. But perhaps that was part of the curse as well. If Stanley and his father weren't always hopeful, then it wouldn't hurt so much every time their hopes were crushed. Not every Stanley Yelnats has been a failure, Stanley's mother often pointed out, whenever Stanley or his father became so discouraged that they actually started to believe in the curse. The first Stanley Yelnats, Stanley's great-grandfather, had made a fortune in the stock market. He couldn't have been too unlucky. At such times, she neglected to mention the bad luck that befell the first Stanley Yelnats. He lost his entire fortune when he was moving from New York to California. His stagecoach was robbed by the outlaw kissing Kate Barlow. If it wasn't for that... Stanley's family would now be living in a mansion on a beach in California. Instead, they were crammed in a tiny apartment that smelled of burning rubber and foot odor. If only, if only. The apartment smelled the way it did because Stanley's father was trying to invent a way to recycle old sneakers. The first person who finds a use for old sneakers, he said, will be a very rich man. This was the latest project that led to Stanley's arrest. The bus ride became increasingly bumpy because the road was no longer paved. Actually, Stanley had been impressed when he first found out that his great-grandfather was robbed by kissing Kate Barlow. True, he would have preferred living on the beach in California, but it was still kind of cool to have someone in your family robbed by a famous outlaw. Kate Barlow didn't actually kiss Stanley's great-grandfather. That would have been really cool but she only kissed the men she killed. Instead, she robbed him and left him stranded in the middle of the desert. He was lucky to have survived, Stanley's mother was quick to point out. The bus was slowing down. The guard grunted as he stretched his arms. Welcome to Camp Green Lake, said the driver. Stanley looked out the dirty window. He couldn't see a lake, and hardly anything was green. Chapter 4 Stanley felt somewhat dazed as the guard unlocked his handcuffs and led him off the bus. He had been on the bus for over eight hours. Be careful, the bus driver said as Stanley walked down the steps. Stanley wasn't sure if the bus driver meant for him to be careful going down the steps 
or if he was telling him to be careful at Camp Green Lake. Thanks for the ride, he said. His mouth was dry and his throat hurt. He stepped onto the hard, dry dirt. There was a band of sweat around his wrist where the handcuff had been. The land was barren and desolate. He could see a few run-down buildings and some tents. Farther away, there was a cabin beneath two tall trees. Those two trees were the only plant life he could see. There weren't even weeds. The guard led Stanley to a small building. A sign on front said, You are entering Camp Green Lake Juvenile Correctional Facility. Next to it was another sign, which declared that it was a violation of the Texas Penal Code to bring guns, explosives, weapons, drugs, or alcohol onto the premises. As Stanley read the sign, he couldn't help but to think, Well, duh. The guard led Stanley into the building where he felt the welcome relief of air conditioning. A man was sitting with his feet up on a desk. He turned his head when Stanley and the guard entered, but otherwise didn't move. Even though he was inside, he wore sunglasses and a cowboy hat. He also held a can of soda, and the sight of it made Stanley more aware of his own thirst. He waited while the bus guard gave the man some papers to sign. It's a lot of sunflower seeds, the bus guard said. Stanley noticed a burlap sack filled with sunflower seeds on the floor next to the desk. I quit smoking last month, said the man in the cowboy hat. He had a tattoo of a rattlesnake on his arm, and as he signed his name, the snake's rattle seemed to wiggle. I used to smoke a pack a day. Now I eat a sack of these every week. The guard laughed. There must have been a small refrigerator behind his desk, because the man in the cowboy hat produced two more cans of soda. For a second, Stanley hoped that one might be for him, but the man gave one to the guard, and the other was for the driver. Nine hours here, and now nine hours back, the guard grumbled. What a day. Stanley thought about the long, miserable bus ride and felt a little sorry for the guard and bus driver. The man in the cowboy hat spit sunflower seed shells into a waste paper basket. Then he walked around the desk to Stanley. My name is Mr. Sir, he said. Whenever you speak to me, you will call me by my name. Is that clear? Stanley hesitated. Uh, yes, Mr. Sir, he said, though he couldn't imagine that was really the man's name. You're not in the Girl Scouts anymore. Mr. Sir said. Stanley had to remove his clothes in front of Mr. Sir, who made sure he wasn't hiding anything. He was then given two sets of clothes and a towel. Each set consisted of a long sleeve orange jumpsuit, an orange t-shirt, and yellow socks. Stanley wasn't sure if the socks had been yellow originally. He was also given white sneakers, an orange cap, and a canteen made of heavy plastic which unfortunately was empty. The cap had a piece of cloth sewn on the back of it for neck protection. Stanley got dressed. The clothes smelled like soap. Mr. Sir told him he should wear one set to work in and one set for relaxation. Laundry was done every three days. On that day, his work clothes would be washed. Then the other set would become his work clothes, and he would get clean clothes to wear while resting. You are to dig one hole each day, including Saturdays and Sundays. Each hole must be five feet deep and five feet across in every direction. Your shovel is your measuring stick. Breakfast is served at 4.30. I don't know if y'all dug a hole before. When I was a kid, I thought it was fun. I, I don't know why. Somebody, Nobody told me it wasn't fun. Like My daughter used to think... Vacuuming was fun because nobody told her otherwise and I wasn't going to tell her because learn. But digging holes kind of sucks. Especially if you have a dig one and you know exactly how far you have to dig it like you can't stop. And you have to do it every single day. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. I want to go to jail. Can you? Hey, y'all haven't left yet. Can you drive me to jail real quick? Cool, thanks. 
Stanley must look surprised, because Mr. Sir went on to explain that they started early to avoid the hottest part of the day. No one is going to babysit you, he added. The longer it takes you to dig, the longer you'll be out in the sun. If you dig up anything interesting, you're to report it to me or any other counselor. When you finish, the rest of the day is yours. Stanley nodded to show he understood. This isn't a Girl Scout camp, said Mr. Sir. He checked Stanley's backpack and allowed him to keep it. Then he led Stanley outside into the blazing heat. Take a good look around you, Mr. Sir said. What do you see? Stanley looked out across the vast wasteland. The air seemed thick with heat and dirt. Not much, he said. Then hastily added, Mr. Sir. Mr. Sir laughed. You see any guard towers? No. How about an electric fence? No, Mr. Sir. There's no fence at all, is there? No, Mr. Sir. You want to run away? Mr. Sir asked him. Stanley looked back at him, unsure what he meant. If you want to run away, go ahead. Start running. I'm not going to stop you. Stanley didn't know what kind of game Mr. Sir was playing. I see you looking at my gun. Don't worry. I'm not going to shoot you. He tapped his holster. This is for yellow spotted lizards. I wouldn't waste a bullet on you. I'm not going to run away, Stanley said. Good thinking, said Mr. Sir. Nobody runs away from here. We don't need a fence. Know why? Because we've got the only water for a hundred miles. You want to run away? You'll be buzzard food in three days. Stanley could see some kids dressed in orange and carrying shovels dragging themselves towards the tents. You thirsty? asked Mr. Sir. Yes, Mr. Sir, Stanley said gratefully. Well, you better get used to it. You're going to be thirsty for the next 18 months. Chapter 5 18 months? Ooh, wait, no, wait, that's me, sorry. 18 months, that's a year and a half. Okay, of digging a hole every day. Seven times 18. I taught one of my kids that it was real easy to do math if you do it like this. Seven times 18. So seven times 10 is 70. Seven times five is 35. So that's 105. And then seven times three is 21. So that's 126 days or 100. Yeah. No. What? Man, I guess that's why he got the grade he did in math. I'm just kidding. My kids got good grades in math because they learned not to listen to me. It's actually 18 times 30. Which means 18, you take, so 30 times 10 is 300, obviously. And then 30 times 5 is 150, so that's 450. And then 30 times 3 is 90. But then you got to factor in the fact that there's 31 days in some of those months. And now you know what? It don't even matter. Math. Math. Right? Am I right? Math. Like, what's the deal with Common Core? Right? I really bust it down for y'all. But, you know, we don't know um, if he passes February twice. We don't. We don't know how to factor that in. So, yeah, and some of these months have 30, and some of these months have 31, but every month has 28. Don't fall for the okie doke when somebody asks you that question. Chapter 5. There were six large gray tents, and each one had a black letter on it. A, B, C, D, E, or F. The first five tents were for the campers. The counselors slept in F. Stanley was assigned a D tent. Mr. Pendansky was his counselor. My name is easy to remember, said Mr. Pendansky as he shook hands with Stanley just outside of the tent. Three easy words. Pen, dance, key. Mr. Sir returned to the office. Mr. Pendansky was younger than Mr. Sir and not nearly as scary looking. The top of his head was shaved so close it was almost bald but his face was covered in a thick, curly black beard, 
His nose was badly sunburned. Mr. Sir isn't really so bad, said Mr. Pendansky. He's just been in a bad mood ever since he quit smoking. The person you got to worry about is the warden. There's really only one rule at Camp Green Lake. Don't upset the warden. Stanley nodded as if he understood. I want you to know, Stanley, that I respect you, Mr. Pendansky said. I understand you've made some bad mistakes in your life. Otherwise, you wouldn't be here. But everyone makes mistakes. You may have done some bad things, but that doesn't mean you're a bad kid. Stanley nodded. It seemed pointless to try and tell his counselor that he was innocent. He figured that everyone probably said that. He didn't want Mr. Penn, Dance, Key to think he had a bad attitude. I'm going to help you turn your life around, said his counselor. But you're going to have to help too. Can I count on your help? Yes, sir, Stanley said. Mr. Pendansky said, good, and patted Stanley on the back. Two boys, each carrying a shovel, were coming across a compound. Mr. Pendansky called to them. Rex, Alan, I want you to come say hello to Stanley. He's the newest member of our team. The boys glanced wearily at Stanley. They were dripping with sweat, and their faces were so dirty that it took Stanley a moment to notice that one kid was white and the other was black. What happened to Barf Bag? said the black kid. Lewis is still in the hospital, said Mr. Pendansky. He won't be returning. He told the boys to come and shake Stanley's hand and introduce themselves, like gentlemen. Hi, the white kid grunted. That's Alan, said Mr. Pendansky. My name's not Alan, the boy said. It's Squid, and that's X-Ray. Hey, said X-Ray. He smiled and shook Stanley's hand. He wore glasses, but they were so dirty that Stanley wondered how he could see out of them. Mr. Pendansky told Alan to go to the rec hall and bring the other boys to meet Stanley. Then he led him inside the tent. There were seven cots, each one less than two feet from the one next to it. Which was Lewis's cot? Mr. Pendansky asked. Barkbag slept here, said X-Ray, kicking at one of the beds. All right, Stanley. That'll be yours, said Mr. Pendansky. Stanley looked at the cot and nodded. He wasn't particularly thrilled about sleeping in the same cot that had been used by someone named Barfbag. Seven crates were stacked in two piles on one side of the tent. The open end of the crates faced outward. Stanley put his backpack, change of clothes, and towels in what used to be Barfbag's crate. It was at the bottom of the stack that had three in it. Squid returned with four other boys. The first three were introduced by Mr. Pendansky as Jose, Theodore, and Ricky. They called themselves Magnet, Armpit, and Zigzag. They all have nicknames, explained Mr. Pendansky. However, I prefer to use the names their parents gave them, the names that society will recognize them by when they return to become useful and hardworking members of society. It ain't just a nickname, X-Ray told Mr. Pendansky. He tapped the rim of his glasses. I can see inside you, Mom. You've got a big, fat heart. The last boy either didn't have a real name or else he didn't have a nickname. Both Mr. Pendansky and X-Ray called him Zero. You know why his name's Zero? asked Mr. Pendansky. Because there's nothing inside of his head. He smiled and playfully shook Zero's shoulder. Zero said nothing. Really, Counselor? That's that's how we're treating one of the kids? The one who acts differently from the rest of the kids in the group? Instead of you taking steps to try and figure out what's going on, you just say his nickname is Zero because there's Zero inside of his head? I understand that the guards might be bullies. And I understand that the kids might be bullies against other kids. That happens. But you're supposed to be like an ally. And you're failing already. And that's mom, a boy said. Mr. Pendansky smiled at him. If it makes you feel better to call me mom, Theodore, go ahead and call me mom. He turned to Stanley. 
If you have questions, Theodore will help you. You got that, Theodore? I'm depending on you. Theodore spit a thin line of saliva between his teeth, causing some of the other boys to complain about the need to keep their home sanitary. You were all new here once, said Mr. Pendansky, and you all know what it feels like. I'm counting on every one of you to help Stanley. Stanley looked at the ground. Mr. Pendansky left the tent, and soon the other boys began to file out as well, taking their towels and changes of clothes with them. Stanley was relieved to be left alone, but he was so thirsty, he felt as if he would die if he didn't get something to drink soon. Hey, uh, Theodore, he said, going after him. Do you know where I can fill my canteen? Theodore whirled and grabbed Stanley by his collar. My name's not Theodore, he said. It's Armpit. He threw Stanley to the ground. Stanley stared up at him, terrified. There's a water spigot on the wall of the shower stall. Thanks, Armpit, said Stanley. As he watched the boy turn and walk away, he couldn't for the life of him figure out why anyone would want to be called Armpit. In a way, it made him feel a little better about having to sleep in a cot that had been used by someone named Barfbag. Maybe it was a term of respect. Chapter 6 Stanley took a shower, if you could call it that. Ate dinner, if you could call it that. And went to bed, if you can call his smelly and scratchy cot a bed. Because of the scarcity of water, each camper was only allowed a four-minute shower. It took Stanley nearly that long to get used to the cold water. There was no knob for hot water. He kept stepping into and then jumping back from the spray until the water shut off automatically. He never managed to use his bar of soap, which was just as well because he wouldn't have had time to rinse off the suds. Dinner was some kind of stewed meat and vegetables. The meat was brown and the vegetables had once been green. Everything pretty much tasted the same. He ate it all and used a slice of white bread to mop up the juice. Stanley had never been one to leave food on his plate, no matter how it tasted. What'd you do? One of the campers asked him. At first, Stanley didn't know what he meant. They sent you here for a reason. Oh, he realized. I stole a pair of sneakers. The other boys thought that was funny. Stanley wasn't sure why. Maybe because their crimes were a lot worse than stealing shoes. From a store? Or were they on someone's feet? Asked Squid. Um, neither, Stanley answered. They belonged to Clyde Livingston. Nobody believed him. Sweet feet? Said X-Ray. Yeah, right. No way, said Squid. Now, as Stanley lay on his cot, he thought it was kind of funny in a way. Nobody had believed him when he said it was innocent. Now, when he said he stole them, no one believed him either. Clyde Sweet Feet Livingston was a famous baseball player. He had led the American League in stolen bases over the last three years. He was also the only player in history to ever hit four triples in one game. Stanley had a poster of him hanging on the wall of his bedroom. He used to have the poster anyway. He didn't know where it was at now. It had been taken by the police and was used as evidence in his guilt in the courtroom. Clyde Livingston also came to court. In spite of everything, when Stanley found out the Sweet Feet was going to be there, he was actually excited about the prospect of meeting his hero. Clyde Livingston testified that they were his sneakers and that he had donated them to help raise money for the homeless shelter. He said he couldn't imagine what kind of horrible person was still from homeless children. That was the worst part for Stanley. His hero thought he was a no-good, dirty, rotten thief. As Stanley tried to turn over on his cot, he was afraid that it was going to collapse under all his weight. He barely fit in it. When he finally managed to roll over on his stomach, 
the smell was so bad that he had to turn over again to try sleeping on his back. The cot smelled like sour milk. Though it was night, the air was still very warm. Armpit was snoring two cots away. Back at school, a bully named Derek Dunn used to torment Stanley. The teachers never took Stanley's complaint seriously because Derek was so much smaller than Stanley. Some teachers even seemed to find it amusing that a little kid like Derek could pick on someone as big as Stanley. On the day that Stanley was arrested, Derek had taken Stanley's notebook and after a long game of come and get it, finally dropped it in the toilet in the boys' restroom. By the time Stanley retrieved it, he had missed his bus and had to walk home. It was while he was walking home, carrying his wet notebook with the prospect of having a copy to ruin pages, that the sneakers fell from the sky. I was walking home and the sneakers fell from the sky, he had told the judge. One hit me on the head. It hurt, too. They hadn't exactly fallen from the sky. He had just walked out from under a freeway overpass when the shoe hit him on the head. Stanley took it as some kind of sign. His father had been trying to figure out a way to recycle old sneakers, and suddenly a pair of sneakers fell on top of him, seemingly out of nowhere, like a gift from God. Naturally, he had no way of knowing they belonged to Clyde Livingston. In fact, the shoes were anything but sweet. Whoever had worn them had had a bad case of foot odor. Stanley couldn't help but think there was something special about the shoes that they could somehow provide the key to his father's invention. It was too much of a coincidence to be mere accident. Stanley had felt like he was holding Destiny's shoes. You know, later on we would feel like we were holding Destiny's child. Destiny grew up in front of us. He ran. Thinking back now, he wasn't sure why he ran. Maybe he was in a hurry to bring the shoes to his father. Or maybe he was trying to run away from his miserable and humiliating day at school. A patrol car pulled alongside him. A policeman asked him why he was running. Then he took the shoes and made a call on his radio. Shortly thereafter, Stanley was arrested. It turned out that the sneakers had been stolen from a display at the homeless shelter. That evening, rich people were going to come to the shelter and pay $100 to eat the food that the poor people ate every day for free. Clyde Livingston, who had once lived at the shelter when he was younger, was going to speak and sign autographs. His shoes were going to be auctioned, and it was expected that they would sell for over $5,000. All the money would go to help the homeless. Because of the baseball schedule, Stanley's trial was delayed several months. His parents couldn't afford a lawyer. You don't need a lawyer, his mother said. Just tell the truth. Stanley told the truth, but perhaps it would have been better if he had lied a little. He could have said he found the shoes in the street. No one believed they fell from the sky. It wasn't destiny, he realized. It was his no-good, dirty, rotten, pig-stealing great-great-grandfather. The judge called Stanley's crime despicable. The shoes were valued at over $5,000. It was money that would provide food and shelter for the homeless. And you stole from them, just so you could have a souvenir. The judge said that there was an opening at Camp Green Lake. And he suggested that the discipline of the camp might improve Stanley's character. It was either that, or jail. Stanley's parents asked if they could have some time to find out more about Camp Green Lake. But the judge advised them to make a quick decision. Vacancies don't last long at Camp Green Lake. Chapter 7 The shovel felt heavy in Stanley's soft, fleshy hands. He tried to jam it into the earth, but the blade banged against the ground and bounced off without making a dent. The vibrations ran up the shaft of the shovel and into Stanley's wrists, making his bones rattle. It was still dark. The only light came from the moon and the stars, more stars than Stanley had ever seen before. It seemed he had only just gotten to sleep when Mr. Pendansky came in and woke everyone up. Using all his might, he brought the shovel back down onto the dry lake bed. 
The force stung his hands, but made no impression on the earth. He wondered if he had a defective shovel. He glanced at Zero, about 15 feet away, who scooped out a shovel full of dirt and dumped it on a pile that was already almost a foot tall. For breakfast, they had been served some kind of lukewarm cereal. The best part was the orange juice. They each got a pint carton. The cereal actually didn't taste too bad, but it had smelled just like it's cot. Then they filled their canteens, got their shovels, and were marched out across the lake. Each group was assigned a different area. The shovels were kept in a shed near the showers. They all looked the same to Stanley, although X-Ray had his own special shovel, which no one was allowed to use. X-Ray claimed it was shorter than the others, but if it was, it was only by a fraction of an inch. The shovels were five feet long, from the tip of the steel blade to the end of the wooden shaft. Stanley's hole would have to be as deep as his shovel, and he'd have to be able to lay the shovel flat across the bottom in any direction. That was why X-Ray wanted the shortest shovel. The lake was so full of holes and mounds that it reminded Stanley of pictures he had seen of the moon. If you find anything interesting or unusual, Mr. Pendansky had told him, you should report it either to me or Mr. Sir when we come around with the water truck. If the warden likes what you found, you'll get the rest of the day off. What are we supposed to be looking for? Stanley asked him. You're not looking for anything. You're digging to build character. It's just if you find anything... The warden would like to know about it. He glanced helplessly at his shovel. It wasn't defective. He was defective. He noticed a thin crack in the ground. He placed the point of his shovel on top of it, then jumped on the back of the blade with both feet. The shovel sank a few inches into the packed earth. He smiled. For once in his life, it paid to be overweight. He leaned on the shaft and pried up his first shovel full of dirt, then dumped it off to the side. Only ten million more to go, he thought, then placed the shovel back in the crack and jumped on it again. He unearthed several shovelfuls of dirt in this manner, before it occurred to him that he was dumping his dirt within the perimeter of his hole. He laid his shovel flat on the ground and marked where the edges of his hole would be. Five feet was awfully wide. He moved the dirt he had already dug up out past his mark. He took a drink from his canteen. Five feet would be awfully deep too. The digging got easier after a while. The ground was hardest at the surface, where the sun had baked a crust about eight inches deep. Beneath that, the earth was looser. But by the time Stanley broke past the crust, a blister had formed in the middle of his right thumb, and it hurt to hold the shovel. Stanley's great-great-grandfather was named Elia Yelnats. He was born in Latvia. When he was 15 years old, he fell in love with Myra Minky. He didn't know he was Stanley's great-great-grandfather. Myra Minky was 14. She would turn 15 in two months, at which time her father decided she would be married. Elia went to her father to ask for her hand. But so did Igor Barkov, the pig farmer. Igor was 57 years old. He had a red nose and fat puffy cheeks. I will trade you my fattest pig for your daughter, Igor offered. And what have you got, Myra's father asked Elia. A heart full of love, said Elia. I'd rather have a fat pig, said Myra's father. Desperate, Elia went to see Madame Zeroni an old Egyptian woman who lived on the edge of town. He had become friends with her, though she was quite a bit older than him. She was even older than Igor Barkov. The other boys of his village liked to mud wrestle. Elia preferred visiting Madame Zeroni and listening to her many stories. Madame Zeroni had dark skin and a very wide mouth. When she looked at you, her eyes seemed to expand, and you felt like she was looking right through you. Elia, what's wrong, she asked, before he even told her he was upset. She was sitting in a homemade wheelchair. She had no left foot. 
Her leg stopped at her ankle. I'm in love with Myra Minky, Elia confessed. But Igor Barkov has offered to trade his fattest pig for her. I can't compete with that. Good, said Madame Zeroni. You're too young to get married. You've got your whole life ahead of you. But I love Myra. Myra's head is as empty as a flower pot. But she's beautiful. So is a flower pot. Can she push a plow? Can she milk a goat? No, she's too delicate. Can she have an intelligent conversation? No, she's silly and foolish. Will she take care of you when you're sick? No, she's spoiled and will only want you to take care of her. So, she's beautiful. So what? Patooey! Madame Zeroni spat on the dirt. She told Elia that he should go to America. Like my son. That's where your future lies. Not with Myra Minky. But Elia would hear none of that. He was 15 and all he could see was Myra's shallow beauty. Madame Zeroni hated to see Elia so forlorn. Against her better judgment, she agreed to help him. It just so happens... My sow gave birth to a litter of piglets yesterday, she said. There's one little runt whom she won't suckle. You may have him. He would die anyway. Madame Zeroni led Elia around the back of her house where she kept her pigs. Elia took the tiny piglet, but he didn't see what good it would do him. It wasn't much bigger than a rat. He'll grow, Madame Zeroni assured him. Do you see that mountain on the edge of the forest? Yes, said Elia. On the top of the mountain, there's a stream where the water runs uphill. You must carry the piglet every day to the top of the mountain and let it drink from the stream. As it drinks, you are to sing to him. She taught Elia a special song to sing to the pig. On the day of Myra's 15th birthday, you should carry the pig up the mountain one last time. Then take it directly to Myra's father. It will be fatter than any of Igor's pigs. If it is that big and fat, asked Elia, how will I be able to carry it up the mountain? The piglet is not too heavy for you now, is it? asked Madame Zeroni. Of course not, said Elia. Do you think it will be too heavy for you tomorrow? No. Every day you will carry the pig up the mountain. It will get a little bigger, but you will get a little stronger. After you give the pig to Myra's father, I want you to do one more thing for me. Anything, said Elia. I want you to carry me up the mountain. I want to drink from the stream, and I want you to sing the song to me. Elia promised he would. Madame Zeroni warned that if he failed to do this, he and his descendants would be doomed for all of eternity. At the time, Elia thought nothing of the curse. He was just a 15-year-old kid. An eternity didn't seem much longer than a week from Tuesday. Besides, he liked Madame Zeroni and would be glad to carry her up the mountain. He would have done it right then and there, but he wasn't yet strong enough. Stanley was still digging. His hole was about three feet deep, but only in the center. It sloped upward to the edges. The sun had just only come up over the horizon, but he could already feel its hot rays against his face. As he reached down to pick up his canteen, he felt a sudden rush of dizziness and put his hands on his knees to steady himself. For a moment, he was afraid he would throw up, but the moment passed. He drank the last drop of water from his canteen. He had blisters on every one of his fingers and one in the center of each palm. Everyone else's hole was a lot deeper than his. He couldn't actually see their holes, but could tell by the size of their dirt piles. He saw a cloud of dust moving across the wasteland and noticed that the other boys had stopped digging and were watching it too. The dirt cloud moved closer and he could see that it trailed behind a red pickup truck. The truck stopped near where they were digging and the boys lined up behind it. X-ray in front, zero at the rear. Stanley got in line behind zero. Mr. Sir filled each of their canteens from a tank of water in the bed of the pickup.
As he took Stanley's canteen from him, he said, This isn't the Girl Scouts, is it? Stanley raised and lowered one shoulder. Mr. Sir followed Stanley back to his hole to see how he was doing. You better get with it, he said, or else you're going to be digging in the hottest part of the day. He popped some sunflower seeds into his mouth. Deathly removed the shells with his teeth and spat them into Stanley's hole. Every day, Elliot carried the little piglet up the mountain and sang to it as it drank from the stream. As the pig grew fatter, Elliot grew stronger. On the day of Myra's 15th birthday, Elliot's pig weighed over 50 stones. Madame Zeroni had told him to carry the pig up the mountain on that day as well. But Elliot didn't want to present himself to Myra smelling like a pig. Instead, he took a bath. It was a second bath in less than a week. Then he took the pig to Myra's. Igor Barkov was there with his pig as well. These were two of the finest pigs I've ever seen, Myra's father declared. He was also impressed with Elia, who seemed to have grown bigger and stronger in the last two months. I used to think you were a good-for-nothing book reader, he said. But now I see you could be an excellent mud wrestler. May I marry your daughter? Elia boldly asked. First, I must weigh the pigs. Alas, poor Elia should have carried his pig up the mountain one last time. The two pigs weighed exactly the same. Stanley's blisters were ripped open, and new blisters formed. He kept changing his grip on the shovel to try and avoid the pain. Finally, he removed his cap and held it between the shaft of his shovel and his raw hands. This helped, but digging was harder because the cap would slip and slide. The sun beat down on his unprotected head and neck. Although he tried to convince himself otherwise, he had been aware for a while that his piles of dirt were too close to his hole. The piles were outside of his five-foot circle, but he could see that he was going to run out of room. Still, he pretended otherwise and kept adding more dirt to the piles, piles that he would eventually have to move. The problem was that when the dirt was in the ground, it was compacted. It expanded when it was excavated. The piles were a lot bigger than this hole was deep. It was either now or later. Reluctantly, he climbed out of his hole and once again dug his shovel into his previously dug dirt. Myra's father got down on his hands and knees and closely examined each pig, tail to snout. Those are two of the finest pigs I've ever seen, he said at last. How am I to decide? I have only one daughter. Why not let Myra decide, suggested Elia. That's preposterous, exclaimed Igor, expelling saliva as he spoke. Myra is just an empty-headed girl, said his father. How can she possibly decide when I, her father, can't? She knows how she feels in her heart, said Elia. Myra's father rubbed his chin. Then he laughed and said, Why not? He slapped Elia on the back. It doesn't matter to me. A pig is a pig. He summoned his daughter. Elia blushed when Myra entered the room. Good afternoon, Myra, he said. She looked at him. You're Elia, right? she asked. Myra, said her father. Elia and Igor have each offered a pig for your hand in marriage. It doesn't matter to me. A pig is a pig. So I'll let you make the choice. Whom do you wish to marry? Myra looked confused. You want me to decide? That's right, my Blossom, said her father. Gee, I don't know, said Myra. Which pig weighs more? They both weigh the same, said her father. Golly, said Myra. I guess I'll choose Elia. No, Igor. No, Elia. No, Igor. Uh, I know. I'll think of a number between 1 and 10. I'll marry whoever guesses the closest number. Okay. I'm ready. 10, guessed Igor. Elia said nothing. Elia, said Myra. What number do you guess? Elia didn't pick a number. 
Merry Igor, he muttered. You can keep my pig as a wedding present. You placed all your heart into this girl who didn't even know your name. Madame Zeroni had warned you. She didn't even know your name, dog. And she literally, you're leading by your heart. She's leading by the chant. That's it. Just chant. She doesn't. Mm. The next time the water truck came, it was driven by Mr. Pendansky, who also brought sack lunches. Stanley sat with his back against a pile of dirt and ate. He had a bologna sandwich, potato chips, and a large chocolate chip cookie. How you doing? asked Magnet. Not real good, said Stanley. Well, the first hole is the hardest, Magnet said. Stanley took a long, deep breath. He couldn't afford to dawdle. He was way behind the others, and the sun just kept getting hotter. It wasn't even noon yet, but he didn't know if he had the strength to stand up. He thought about quitting. He wondered what they would do to him. What could they do to him? His clothes were soaked with sweat. In school, he had learned that sweating was good for you. It was nature's way of keeping you cool. So why was he so hot? Using his shovel for support, he managed to get to his feet. Where are we supposed to go to the bathroom? He asked Magnet. Magnet gestured with his arms to the great expanse around him. Pick a hole, any hole. Stanley staggered across the lake, almost falling over a dirt pile. Behind him, he heard Magnet say, But first, make sure nothing's living in it. After leaving Myra's house, Elia wandered aimlessly through the town until he found himself down by the wharf. He sat on the edge of a pier and stared down into the cold black water. He could not understand how Myra had trouble deciding between him and Igor. He thought she loved him. Even if she didn't love him, couldn't she see what a foul person Igor was? It was like Madame Zeronia said. Her head was as empty as a flower pot. Some men were gathering on another dock, and he went to see what was going on. A sign read, Deckhands Wanted, Free Passage to America. He had no sailing experience, but the ship's captain signed him aboard. The captain could see that Elia was a man of great strength. Not everybody could carry a full-grown pig up the side of a mountain. It wasn't until the ship had cleared the harbor and was heading out across the Atlantic that he suddenly remembered his promise to carry Madame Zeroni up the mountain. He felt terrible. He wasn't afraid of the curse. He thought that was a lot of nonsense. He felt bad because he knew Madame Zeroni had wanted to drink from the stream before she died. Zero was the smallest kid in Group D, but he was the first one to finish digging. You're finished? Stanley asked enviously. Zero said nothing. Stanley walked to Zero's hole and watched him measure with his shovel. The top of his hole was a perfect circle, and the sides were smooth and steep. Not one dirt clod more than necessary had been removed from the earth. Zero pulled himself up to the surface. He didn't even smile. He looked down at his perfectly dug hole, spat in it, and then turned and headed back to the camp compound. Zero's one weird dude, said Zigzag. Stanley would have laughed but he didn't have the strength. Zigzag had to be the weirdest dude Stanley had ever seen. He had a long skinny neck and a big round head with wild frizzy blonde hair that stuck out in all directions. His head seemed to bob up and down on his neck like it was on a spring. Armpit was the second one to finish digging. He also spat into his hole before heading back into the camp compound. One by one, Stanley watched as each of the boys spit into his hole and returned to the camp compound. Stanley kept digging. His hole was almost up to his shoulders, although it was hard to tell exactly where ground level was because his dirt piles completely surrounded the hole. The deeper he got, the harder it was to raise the dirt up and out the hole. Once again, he realized he was going to have to move the piles. His cap was stained with blood from his hands. He felt like he was digging his own grave.
In America, Elia learned to speak English. He fell in love with a woman named Sarah Miller. She could push a plow, milk a goat, and most important, think for herself. She and Elia often stayed up half the night talking and laughing together. Their life was not easy. Elia worked hard, but bad luck seemed to follow him everywhere. He always seemed to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. He remembered Madame Zeroni telling him that she had a son in America. Elia was forever looking for him. He'd walk up to complete strangers and ask if they knew someone named Zeroni, or had ever heard of anyone named Zeroni. No one ever did. Elia wasn't sure what he'd do if he ever found Madame Zeroni's son anyway. Carry him up a mountain and sing the pig lullaby to him? After his barn was struck by lightning for the third time, he told Sarah about his broken promise to Madame Zeroni. I'm worse than a pig thief, he said. You should leave me and find someone who isn't cursed. I'm not leaving you, said Sarah. But I want you to do one thing for me. Anything, said Elia. Sarah smiled. Sing me the pig lullaby. He sang it for her. Her eyes sparkled. That's so pretty. What does it mean? Elliot tried his best to translate it from Latvian into English, but it wasn't the same. It rhymes in Latvian, he told her. I could tell, said Sarah. A year later, their child was born. Sarah named him Stanley because she noticed that Stanley was yelling at spelled backwards. Sarah changed the words of the pig lullaby so that they rhymed, and every night she sang it to little Stanley. If only, if only the woodpecker's sighs, the bark on the tree was as soft as the skies, while the wolf waits below, hungry and lonely, crying to the moon, if only, if only... Stanley's hole was as deep as a shovel, but not quite wide enough on the bottom. He grimaced as he sliced off a chunk of dirt, then raised it up and flung it onto a pile. He laid his shovel back down on the bottom of his hole, and to a surprise, it fit. He rotated it, and only had to chip off a few chunks of dirt, here and there, before it could lie flat across his hole in every direction. He heard the water truck approaching and felt the strange sense of pride of being able to show Mr. Sir, or Mr. Pendansky, that he had dug his first hole. He put his hands on the rim and tried to pull himself up. He couldn't do it. His arms were too weak to lift his heavy body. He used his legs to help, but he just didn't have any strength. He was trapped in his hole. It was almost funny, but he wasn't in the mood to laugh. Stanley, he heard Mr. Pendansky call. Using his shovel, he dug two footholds in the hole wall. He climbed out to find Mr. Pendansky walking over to him. I was afraid you had fainted, Mr. Pendansky said. You wouldn't have been the first. I'm finished, Stanley said, putting his blood-spotted cap back on his head. All right, said Mr. Pendansky, raising his hand for a high five. But Stanley ignored it. He didn't have the strength. Mr. Pendansky lowered his hand and looked down to Stanley's hole. Well done, he said. You want to ride back? Stanley shook his head. I'll walk. Mr. Pendansky climbed back into the truck without filling Stanley's canteen. Stanley waited for him to drive away, then took another look at his hole. He knew it was nothing to be proud of, but he felt proud nonetheless. He sucked up his last bit of saliva and spat. So, I didn't realize this when I first read this book, and I didn't realize it when I was reading the book at all, and I didn't realize it when I saw the movie, because they did make a change. I don't like the way that they are fat-shaming him, or that they're making it a point to point out the fact that he's overweight. Because the way that they're doing it isn't the nicest way to go about it, and I realize that it's a book that was written in the 90s, and so be it, and all that kind of stuff, but still. In the movie... He wasn't overweight, so it wasn't a thing that I even noticed. But reading the book now, it strikes me almost immediately, and I don't like that. So, yeah. 
916-633-1537, Ratchet and Ratchet at gmail.com, Ratchet Book Club on Twitter, Ratchet Book Club on Facebook. Uh, You can leave a review on Podchaser. Uh, You can leave a review on Apple Podcasts. The thing about Podchaser, you can leave a review for this episode or you can leave a review for the show as a whole. And then once you do that, you can copy that review and take it over to Apple Podcasts and you can leave a review over there. And then once you do that, you can go over to Good Pods, which is an app, and leave a review over there. And that's three reviews that you can do in like maybe five, seven minutes. You can also donate to the show at um, patreon.com slash single simulcast or at buymeacoffee.com slash sscast. Um, Or you can go to Good Pods, which again is an app, and you could tip us there. All the money goes towards buying books and movies for hindsight. Books for here, movies for hindsight. Thank y'all so much for listening. I greatly appreciate it. Y'all be good. I'm going to holler at you later. Peace. and outro to Ratchet Book Club is by That Kid Garan and it's called Goodbyes. You can email him at tkgbeats94 at gmail.com for more information on how to lease this beat. This is Single Simulcast. Don't know my dad and you say